Good morning, Anais. Before I start, I have to make some acknowledgements. First of all, I want to credit my wife for my presentation. She insisted that I should be dressed casually with a nice haircut. <laughs> I was going to come here with a shirt, a tie, and long hair. If you like what you see, please provide feedback to Jose on Christmas. I also want to acknowledge my faithful assistant in the back, Reynolds, who's going to do a few things for me. And finally, I want to acknowledge and thank the handful of people that I'm going to embarrass and assume. No worries. The thief felt what? So I tried to break the record for the weirdest sermon title. I'm quite sure that this is the weirdest title we've heard so far, anyways, in 2020. <laughs> but there is a logic to my madness. Today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. And if that wasn't enough justification, next Sunday is the second Sunday of Epiphany. And would you believe that we're going to keep going that way all the way to the sixth Sunday of Epiphany? So Epiphany is a thing for Anglicans. It's not just a Christian feast day. It's a whole season. It's a whole liturgical season in our calendar. But that's not why I want to talk about Epiphany, because I'm not one to be bossed around by a calendar. I really want to talk about this because I'm convinced that there is nothing in the whole wide world that is as cool as Epiphany. And I have about 20 minutes to convince you as well. So, Epiphany sounds boring, but it didn't have to be that way. It sounds boring because Epiphany is a transliteration of a Greek word that no one in the understands. So what I mean is this, there is a Greek word, next slide please. Epiphania. Epiphania, some uh, well-meaning people, I suppose, decided to massage it, to make it sound more English, and that's how we got Epiphany. But if you ask a Greek person, well, he or she will say, oh, Epiphania, well, that's not a mysterious word. It's a word that simply means an appearance, uh, an appearing, if you wish, a manifestation, a glorious display. So, okay, so it's not a mysterious word, but it's not a very exciting word either. Uh, that is, until you see how the Bible uses the word. The Bible uses Epiphania six times, and for each of these six times, the Bible is talking about the appearance, or the appearing, or the manifestation, or the glorious display of, wait for it, Jesus. And that's why the feast is formally called the Epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the excitement meter has gone up a little bit, but there's more to come. Okay, let's make something really clear right off the bat. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is the appearing of God Himself. You have heard and you have understood that one of the things Jesus accomplished on the earth was to reveal to us the Father. Okay, so I don't need to spend too much time on this, but I'll just give two supporting passages. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, it says, next slide please. 
It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, when the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, it was the epiphany, it was the appearing of God himself to be with us. And in the Gospel of John chapter 14, we have the Apostle Philip asking Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus answered, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So in other words, if you've heard the words of Jesus and you've seen his works, well, you have heard the words and you have seen the works of God the Father himself. So as a conclusion, as it says here, the epiphany, on the slide, the epiphany of our Lord Jesus is no less than the appearing to the world of God himself. Now, pardon me for the obvious question, but why should we be so excited about the epiphany, the appearing of God? Um, it's a bit of a coincidence that I've been looking into a course from the Christianity Explored series, the course that's called Life Explored. I want to read a little paragraph from the leader's handbook. It says, Life Explored is an expose of the little gods that promise us so much happiness, yet deliver so little. As it explores the Bible story, Life Explored shows how our deepest desires for happiness. Good job, Reynolds. I think I forgot to ask for the next slide. Life Explored shows how our deepest desires for happiness can only be satisfied in one person. The best gift God can give us is Himself. So there you go. When God is appearing to us or to the world, He is giving us the very best gift that He can give us. He is giving us the gift of Himself. A few weeks ago, Scott gave us a personal testimony. What Scott shared with us was an epiphany. It was an appearing of the Lord to him in a fresh, new, meaningful way. And Scott, who I think is here somewhere, I, just, I, I promise this will not be very long. Okay. <laughs> but I want to report some words that Scott said to me. He said, man, this is what eternity with God is going to look like. And Scott was short of words at this point. His jaw was dropped. And his arms, his open arms, seem to be saying, this is a no-brainer. And Scott will confirm, but I think he wanted to say this, Lord, if that is the future you have prepared for me, take everything. Take my hands, take my car, take my life. I give you all that I am and all that I have. Take what you need. No cost is too high. Nothing is not worth it. Use me, use me, use me. Is that close enough, Scott? 
I had an epiphany of my own in the late 1990s before I was married. It was during worship at one of our Sunday services. It might have lasted just five seconds, but I just had this sudden sense in God's mind as he was reflecting on me. And I've since tried to put words on my experience, but I won't give it justice. But it was clear that God loved me in a personal way, that the unique way that I bore his image, call it the Colin way, if you wish. Well, that was known to him and that was cherished by him because it was an essential, an essential part of his, uh, his good creation. Another person with a story of epiphany is our rector's warden, uh, Peter. Uh, God willing, we will have the pleasure to hear about that too. And hopefully we can hear from some of you about how God has come to meet you. Okay, here's another simple question with a not so simple answer. Now, you'll need to concentrate a little bit on this. The appearing of our God is relevant to us only because God is not usually apparent. If God were continuously apparent to us, well, he could not appear to us, could he? Because you can only appear if you were not apparent. Got it? Which leads naturally to the question, why is God mostly not apparent to us? Why is God usually hidden to us? Now, that is a huge question. Next slide, please. One day I was checking out some debates on the web between believers and skeptics. And in one such debate, the skeptic started his opening speech with the killer argument of the hiddenness of God. His argument went like this. If God exists as the personal, loving, purposeful God of Christianity, how could he not manifest himself to us instead of watching us endlessly debate about his very existence. This is absurd. The argument continues. Even if God existed, he would be quite irrelevant because it's impossible to detect him in any objective way. Perhaps we should stop wasting our time speculating on hypothetical matters, and we should spend our energy on things that have an actual measurable impact on our daily lives. In other words, something that has so little impact on our daily lives that we wonder if it even exists. Such a thing does not deserve any of our time and energy. Ouch! Some are seduced by such a line of reasoning. In fact, this line of reasoning is fatally flawed, and I'd be happy to tell you why. But from this platform, I would like to give you a biblical answer. And God is good. We don't have to go very far. We only have to go as far as Genesis chapter 3 to find some useful answers. So let's look at verse 8. And verse 8 was after Adam and Eve had sinned. Next slide, please. And they, and that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this says more than might appear at first glance. Why did the author bother to say in the cool of the day? We're talking about Almighty God here. Does he care that it was cool? 
or not cool? And why would Adam and Eve hear God approaching? The Bible says that God is spirit. Aren't spirit beings rather quiet when they walk? Well, do they even walk? Wouldn't a spirit being be floating some distance above the ground? Would God really trample the leaves or brush up against the high grass? And I'm not being picky here. This passage is deliberately portraying the Lord as God with us. The God who appears to us. The God who takes on the attributes of humanity to participate in our lived experience. The verse has an earthy flavor. The verse is calculated to convey closeness and intimacy. And against such a backdrop, what transpires in the rest of the verse is all the more shocking. Next slide. And the man and his wife perked up, smiled, and joyfully ran to meet the Lord. Sadly, no. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And this has got, if you think about it, this has got to be the most heartbreaking verse in the whole Bible. How did God react? God was certainly not hiding. It says the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? So who hid from who? Was it God's idea to hide? Why do some want to blame God for the hiding? Adam and Eve sinned against God and they could no longer bear his appearance. And ever since, humanity at large has been quite happy to hide from God and to blame him for the whole situation. But that's not the end of the story. We know that God is working to restore all things as they were in the beginning. In Acts 3, Peter says that heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne and the apostles will sit on 12 thrones. In Romans 8, Paul says that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How will that be possible? Jesus has made it possible. By his life of perfect obedience and by his undeserved execution, Jesus defeated sin. Full payment for sin has been provided. Our sins need not have power over us. And by his resurrection, Jesus defeated the power of sin, which is death. And by the same token, he defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, says Hebrews 2.14. The fates of sin, death, and the devil have been sealed. The foundations of the new world to come have been laid. It has been done. But Jesus' victories have not yet been implemented, have they? For still a while to come, we Christians share in the general fallenness of humanity. The adversary continues to tempt us. We sin and our relationships are strained 
We get sick, we get old, we degenerate, and finally we die. I have understood all these things for some time, but one thing that Epiphany has shown me is an even bigger picture. If it is true that the best gift of God, the best gift that God can give us is himself, well then, the basic catastrophe of the fall of man is this. We have lost God's intimate presence. In other words, the tragic result of the fall of man is the hiddenness of God. And even the church has to experience to some degree that same hiddenness. Have you ever heard somebody say, I enjoy a fully intimate relationship with God. I have full access. I engage in lively conversation with God at any moment of the day. I speak to him and he answers me. He's standing right by me. And we chat all the time like old buddies. I'm sorry, but I cannot buy any of it. And for this good reason, if we could enjoy full intimacy with God right now, well, what more could we look forward to in the age to come? What would be left? We would have it all already. Nothing to look forward to, no promises. It is for a good reason that God compares our future union with Christ to a marriage. And I don't mean being individually married to Christ. Many of the men in this audience would find this a little bit awkward, perhaps. Uh, what I mean is that collectively, the church, all those who belong to Christ, the church, is going to marry Christ. It's very clear in this passage from Revelation. Reynolds, please, next slide. Hallelujah! For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. This is future. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's the church. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And what is marriage? In the perfect plan of God, human marriage is the coming together of husband and wife to reach the highest possible level of human intimacy. It is the complete appearing of husband and wife to each other. Notice I use the word appearing, epiphany. Yes, marriage is supposed to be an epiphany of sorts. And before marriage, the engaged couple get a small down, point, down payment of intimacy that will sustain them through their preparation period. It is the same for the church. Paul said to the Corinthian church, I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. We are engaged. Through the Gospels, we have come to know, to some extent, the church's bridegroom, Jesus, 
During lessons and carols, we had a reading about Jesus appearing to the wise man from the East. And on this first Sunday of Epiphany, we had a reading about Jesus manifested as the beloved Son of God on the day of his baptism. And in the coming Sundays of Epiphany, we will reflect on other ways that Jesus was revealed as the divine Son of God. His first miracle at a wedding in Cana and many miracles that followed. I feel for the apostles when they learned that the Jesus that they had learned to know and love would be leaving the world and going to his father. But Jesus said he would not leave his disciples as orphans. He said, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, otherwise known as the comforter. And brothers and sisters, the spirit of God is what we have now. It is our consolation. What we said of Jesus is also true of the spirit. Where the spirit appears, it is God himself who appears. Let us earnestly seek out the Holy Spirit. Did you know that five times out of six, the word epiphania is not used to refer to Jesus' first coming. It's actually used to refer to Jesus' second coming. And that is a reason for that. That's because the return of Jesus Christ in power will be the ultimate epiphany, not just for the church, but for the whole world. Unfortunately, there, there isn't a consensus on what exactly the return of Christ will signify for the world at large. Personally, I think it will be the greatest thing that has ever happened to the world. But I can say this, for the church, all those who belong to Christ, the second coming will bring the complete satisfaction of our deepest desires for happiness. The Apostle John put it this way. Next slide, please. Beloved, we are God's children now, as Eric reminded us of last Sunday. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Christ, God, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is no better way to conclude than to quote Paul to the Thessalonians. Next slide, please. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There was no greater encouragement to Paul and to the Thessalonians than to ponder the hope of being with the Lord. Always, it is that good.